Hi, I'm Brian Pearson. This is the Mystic Cave. We were born before the wind Also younger than the sun And our bonnet boat was one As we sailed into the mystic The Mystic Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the spiritual journey on the other side of Churchland. I'm continuing to read from my memoir, Lost Rites, Leaving Churchland. In this episode, my parish of St. Stephen's continues to reap the rich harvest of a faith that not only reveres the past, but welcomes the future. Personally, I felt the deep satisfaction of realizing the days of my greatest creativity. It would all be quashed. But until then, our prayer was being answered. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. This is chapter 14, part 2. Wanna rock your gypsy soul And it just like way back in the days of old When a church opens its doors to the homeless, as St. Stephen's had done within from the cold, how does it close them again to anyone else? And why would it want to? Open your doors to the world, the world will come in. And that's exactly what happened. Raymond used to come by the church during the week and ring at the office door, asking for me. Like many who came to us for help, there would be a conversation, but it always led to the ask. Raymond didn't need food or rent or bus tickets. He needed paints. He was an artist. The way it worked was he would bring one of his paintings with him to donate to the church. The images were often dreamy and childlike, like the art of Marc Chagall. Some were fanciful landscapes, but one featured an angel with its arms wrapped around a hapless soul. A week or two after the drop, Raymond would return, asking if we might like to give him something for it, to keep him in paint. I liked Raymond. He was neatly dressed and well-mannered in an old-fashioned way that felt familiar to me from my upbringing. We established one day that he and I were the same age. Behind his outward formality, though, he was a bit of a trickster, which you could see in the sparkle of his eyes. We shared this as well. Whatever else was on my schedule that day, I always tried to make a little time to sit with him. Raymond was a sensitive soul, and tormented by the depth of his feelings. I feared for him and the violent world in which he had to make his way, only a step away from living on the streets. The worst fate he himself could imagine was to lose his room in the flop house he called home and end up at the drop-in center with the druggies, the desperados, and the untreated victims of mental illness. Raymond had mental health issues of his own. 
they presented themselves in the form of several personalities he called upon to deal with the world on his behalf. One bore the imperious accent of the British Raj in India. Raymond himself was of East Indian descent, but this persona claimed to have been a British operative working in India. When would that have been? I asked him. Early sixties, he said, his bottom lip protruding like Churchill's. Nineteen sixty-four, to be exact. That's fascinating, Raymond, I said, doing the math. So you would have been, what, eleven years old? He looked at me sideways, and we laughed. Raymond never came to church for worship. Lynn, our administrator, was the only one to share with me the sadness when we received the call telling us Raymond had died of a heart attack. There had already been a service and a small gathering for family and the few others who knew him. His neighbor recalled Raymond mentioning me and thought I should know. I would gladly have taken the funeral myself as a parting gift. I considered him a friend. There were others. Michael was standoffish when he began attending worship at St. Stephen's. Outwardly, he smiled, appearing genial, but you didn't feel there was much heart in it. His handshake was weak and non-committal. It appeared he was holding something back. As he settled in among us, that something began to reveal itself in odd fashion choices. First, I noticed the nail polish. Then the shoes, women's shoes, with heels. And close up, I could see he was applying makeup to his face. I invited Michael to coffee. I wanted to get to know him. He agreed and as he sat with me rather stiffly in a local eatery, I asked him what he was looking for at St. Stephen's. He was wearing both the shoes and the nail polish that day, and a pair of women's slacks, but his mustache frustrated any attempt to peg him. I saw other patrons noticing him, smirking or shaking their heads. Michael said he wanted to go to church, somewhere he could be himself. I told him he was welcome at St. Stephen's, Going out on a limb, I also told him about the integrity group that met for worship once a month at the church. It was a meeting of gay men who felt unsafe worshipping at other churches. Michael smiled. But I'm not gay, he said. Oh, sorry, I replied. There was an awkward pause while I wondered where to go from there. I consider myself a gender bender, Michael said. I wish that had cleared things up for me, and for the congregation as well, which was beginning to take notice of Michael, especially when he joined the choir and sat up at the front. We watched as a transformation gradually worked its way through how Michael presented himself. He grew his hair long, he lost the mustache, and then one day he arrived in a beautiful, red, form-fitting dress with stockings and heels— one woman said he looked better wearing that outfit than she ever would. The congregation struggled to make a place for Michael. He was pleasant enough in that detached way of his, but we were all distracted by how he messed with our preconceptions. Our confusion was only compounded the Sunday he arrived with Donna on his arm, a vivacious, well-dressed woman he introduced proudly as his fiancée, and then further, when he changed his name to Misha and asked to be referred to in the feminine, explaining to those who probed that he now identified as female, but as a lesbian woman who was attracted to other women. She did, I mean. As we struggled to adjust to Michael's transition to Misha, 
changing our pronouns whenever we caught ourselves, one unlikely parishioner showed us the way. John was big and baby-faced, with twinkling eyes and a wide-open smile. He was our best greeter on Sunday mornings, because if you were new or visiting, that happy face made you feel at home right away, and you just knew, by his size and bearing, that if someone bothered you, he'd step in and throw them out. John's countenance may have been jovial, but his life was hard scrabble. He worked with sheet metal, installing industrial heating and air conditioning systems. When he came to my house one day to do some duct work, I asked if he needed anything. Yes, he did. He needed a rum and coke. His humor could be sexist and racist and was almost always politically incorrect. His politics were black and white. He was prone to getting himself unfriended on Facebook when he let rip against views he didn't like. What most members of the congregation didn't know was that John had suffered a painful past that included neglectful parents, petty crime, and jail time, where he'd learned his trade. He knew what it felt like to be judged as worthless by the world. But having known rejection, he also knew grace. Ruth, his wife, loved him back to life. John would be brought to tears, wondering what would become of him if anything ever happened to his Ruthie. When Michael Misha joined us, John didn't see a misfit. He saw someone like himself, an outsider who was judged and devalued by a cruel, unseeing, uncaring world. Opening their hearts and their home, he and Ruth welcomed Misha as a long-lost family member. Following their example, the rest of us learned to do the same. I thought I was so progressive. Early in my ministry, it struck me as hospitable to invite the congregation forward to receive Holy Communion with the words, All baptized Christians are welcome to receive at this table. This was nothing more than the Anglican Church's official policy, but by saying so, I thought I was heaping burning coals on the heads of those other churches that admitted to communion only members of their own flock. We Anglicans were more generous than that. All Christians were welcome here. It took a Hindu to put that to shame, redefining the notion of open table to include not just all baptized Christians, but quite simply and quite literally, all. Tim was a stalwart member of St. Stephen's. Thirty-something, an engineer in the oil and gas industry, he took things seriously. His work, his relationships, his faith. He was the sort of guy I always wanted to have on my leadership team or close at hand. He could, without a hint of false piety, suggest we begin our meetings with prayer, or that we speak openly with the congregation about the biblical principle of tithing to support the work of the church, which he always described as God working through us. Entering his forties, Tim was successful in business and grounded in his faith, but he was still single, and this bothered him. His personal relationships fell into a predictable pattern. He would be attracted to smart and engaging women who lived halfway around the world. 
He would be as attentive as he could, long distance, but ultimately, they couldn't keep it going. Until he met Mira. In truth, he already knew Mira, and had known her all along. She was a colleague from work. She was focused, she was funny, and she had a faith of her own, as a Hindu. She was born in Ontario and raised by her immigrant East Indian parents in Mississauga. Culturally, she was fully Canadian. But her Hindu roots remained important to her, as a living link to her family's heritage. When Tim found himself falling for her, and her for him, he and I took a lunch. He had no problem with her faith. He didn't judge it as inferior or unworthy. But he did wonder how they would navigate their way between the two religions— especially, God willing, if they had children. He recognized the irony of it and smiled that his faith, which was so important to him, must now find its place as one of several within his own household. Mira began attending Sunday worship with Tim. Everyone fell in love with her. She would accompany Tim to the altar for communion, bowing her head for a blessing rather than extending her hands for the bread and wine— I was so pleased to be able to include her in this way. But maybe she should consider being baptized, I thought, so she could truly join us as a church member and as a communicant. Before we could have that conversation, Tim and Mira announced their engagement. They came to see me about the wedding ceremony. We discussed the possibility of an interfaith wedding involving both myself and a Hindu priest— I was thrilled with the idea and threw myself into the preparations for the service, which would include a small, tented stage called a mandap, for which we would have to make room at the foot of the chancel steps, being before our renovations, which would have made things so much easier. It would be a sacred space within a sacred space. The Hindu priest, whom we addressed as Punditji, would assist me in the ceremony as we each took those portions associated with our respective traditions. When the day came, the elaborate rituals performed by Punditji far outshone my own. In the center of the mandap, he arranged several bowls of spices and grains. He then lit a small fire over which he chanted prayers in Sanskrit while dropping pinches from the bowls into the flame. He led Tim and Mira around the fire, her diaphanous sari wafting dangerously close to the flames, causing the guests in the front row to sit forward just in case they were needed. When it was my turn, I rose, read a few prayers from the prayer book, and said amen. Not the same at all. Mira continued to worship with us in the months that followed their wedding. Then one Sunday, as she stood with Tim during communion, She looked up into my eyes and extended her hands for the bread. Technically, I was not allowed to give Mira communion. She was not a baptized Christian. Aware that I was crossing a threshold from which there was no return, I smiled back and placed the bread in the palm of her hand. Mira, I said, the body of Christ, broken for you. Maybe it was time to have that conversation about baptism. I invited myself over and sat down with Tim and Mira to propose that she consider being baptized, that this would be appropriate if she wished to continue receiving communion. I put things as delicately as I could. She heard me out. But as I see it, she said, getting right to the point, being baptized as a Christian 
would require me to renounce my Hindu faith, and I'm not prepared to do that. I didn't have a ready answer. She was right. If she wanted to receive the sacrament as a Hindu, if she wanted to join us at the table to receive the body and blood of Christ, who was I to stand in her way? Now that would not be hospitable. Tim and Mira brought three children into the world, all of whom were baptized and welcomed as members of the church. They were taught their Hindu heritage as well, sometimes making visits to Calgary's Hindu temple. Mira became an active member of the parish, more active than many others. She was elected to parish council, where she brought her keen intelligence to the challenges of church leadership. No one even thought to question if she was baptized. It didn't matter. She was one of us. Whatever was happening at St. Stephen's, as we opened our doors wider and wider, it felt more like a movement of the Spirit than church in the usual sense. We weren't doing outreach. We were welcoming strangers and supporting our friends in need. We weren't engaging in interfaith dialogue. We were working with people of other faiths, creating worship together. We weren't preaching to the unchurched, trying to get them to join us. We were going out and joining them on their own turf in a common search for truth. As we were reaching out to embrace the world, the world was in turn embracing us. Even the independent arts groups that rented our space mingled their agendas with our own. The Calgary Instrumental Society, which held concerts in our sanctuary, invited us to co-sponsor a weekend workshop on music and healing. Kantari Children's Choir, which rented office space off our church hall and rehearsed in our sanctuary, took note of the war memorials on the walls of the church and used them as a research project for the young choristers when they traveled to Normandy. Our congregation included a proportion of people from across the spectra of sexual orientation and gender identification. They were our friends, which meant we knew some of their frightful stories of rejection and persecution, both in the world and in the church. Many were refugees from churches that openly condemned any form of sexuality other than heterosexuality as a punishable abomination in the eyes of the Lord. So it was only natural that we marched under our own rainbow banner in the Pride Parade, delighting the crowd with our signs, one that read, I said, I hate figs, signed God, and with our exuberant clowning en route, one young woman, seeing the clerical collar I had chosen to wear for the occasion, as well as the rainbow-colored stole, broke from the crowd and ran forward to give me a hug. Thank you, she said in my ear. Other refugees found their way to our doors as well. We partnered with two other churches to become official sponsors of a Syrian family, Muslims, who had fled the violence in their homeland and were languishing in Jordan, waiting to be granted a way out. We became that way. We were months in preparation, assembling household goods and raising funds for whatever they'd need when they arrived, all six of them, to start their new life. 
we prepared a support team of counselors and translators and underwent cultural sensitivity training so we wouldn't unknowingly cause offense. We needn't have worried. The family, when they arrived, was so open and so appreciative of all our efforts, they laughed off our bumbling attempts to get things right. Then we received another refugee family, though not officially. Lovell Young was an active church member whose generosity to any in need was inspirational to us all, especially because he had so little himself. He met the Isaacs one day while he was visiting with their next-door neighbor. The Isaacs were a Christian family from Syria whose sponsorship had fallen apart after they arrived, leaving them with a tiny furnished townhouse for two parents and three grown children and little else. Lovell told them he would tell his minister and that his church would help them. I went to visit. Randa, the wife and mother, spoke some English, but for Sohil, the father, the internet took the place of conversation. He showed me aerial tours of their home city of homes, once majestic and beautiful, now in bombed-out ruins. I learned that their flight from Syria was prompted by a carjacking. Thugs, masquerading as militia members, targeted Sohil as a successful businessman and commandeered his car, throwing him into the back seat. Knowing they were taking him away to shoot him, Sohil opened the door as the car sped around a corner and rolled out onto the pavement, making his escape. In the prevailing lawlessness of the city, he knew they would try again. We raised funds for the family and made contacts that might help them, like an English tutor and a local entrepreneur who could arrange introductions in the business world once Sohil's language skills improved, Their kids settled into their new lives, the son in high school, the daughters in community colleges, and we provided assistance as needs arose, like a laptop and other necessities for modern-day students. As we had learned before, within from the cold, we may have been the ones providing the tangible assistance, but they were the ones providing the blessing. Dinners at the Isaac's home were raucous affairs for Jean and me overflowing with noise and confusion, with enough food and drink for the entire congregation, with cross-cultural confusions and linguistic misunderstandings, the abundant life promised by Jesus was certainly evident in our visits with the Isaacs. So Hill and I, along with Nick, another friend from the church, would take our cigars out onto the deck. Pulling our collars up against the cold, We shared stories and jokes we barely understood across the language barrier, and we laughed. If you're going to open your doors, you're going to lose control of who steps in, which means you're going to be changed. Many churches say they want young people, but not their tattoos and their purple hair and their in-your-face tood. So young people stay away, and the church ages, comforted only by its changeless ways, St. Stephen's could have been like that, like most other churches. Instead, it heralded the opening of its doors as a sign of God's extravagant grace and as a reminder that the kingdom of God would always be wider and more wondrous than anything we ourselves could have imagined. I will be coming home
I've been reading from Lost Rites, Leaving Churchland. I'm grateful to you for following along. If anything you've heard in my story awakens anything from your own, please let me know. You can leave a post on the Facebook group, The Mystic Cave, or write a note to me personally at mysticcaveman53 at gmail.com. In the next episode, as we near the end, the widening work we were doing in the parish would butt up against the narrowing vision of our diocesan gatekeepers. They were pretty sure and pretty clear about who could and who couldn't receive the church's blessings. Things would not go well. Stay with me. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave. It's too late to stop now.